Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello and welcome back. Today we're talking about early years and primary education. In particular, we're looking at matters of inequality and social justice. To do this, I've caught up with Professor Alice Bradbury from University College London. Alice has led a number of pioneering studies in the area of early years inequality. She's looked at the UK government's controversial baseline assessment policy, the differing retention rates amongst black and minority ethnic teachers in the sector, and the disadvantages arising from COVID disruptions to primary schooling. Education researchers tend to talk a lot about inequality and social justice, but perhaps less so when it comes to early years and primary education. So I started off by asking Alice if this was a fair assessment, and if so, why matters of inequality are relatively under-scrutinised in early years and primary research. I think definitely in the past it is, and certainly when I kind of started my research career, it was quite unusual to be a primary person interested in inequality. I think, to be honest, that one of the reasons, particularly in early years, is that there is a bit of a reluctance to talk about some of these bigger, more difficult issues. And people say, you know, just like Gloria Ladson-Billing said about education, you know, what's CRT, what's critical race theory doing in a nice field like education? I think that's even more the case with early years. People think that's an even nicer field. It's just little children, they're all playing, it's all lovely. We don't need to think about these like bigger structural questions about quality and how that outside world is kind of influencing what happens in the classroom because you know this is all just a nice fun happy space so I think that's probably one of the reasons as I said I do think it's changing but my argument has always been that actually if you want to think about issues to do with inequality and and social justice then if you just research secondary it's too late because those kids have already come their school careers are already so inflected with what's happened to them in early years and primary those marginalizations have already happened so many times that you can't solve the problem by looking at what happens just in secondary and so what I love about your work is you look at some kind of big things going on in early years and primary and actually kind of take a sociological perspective and some of these things are, are things which perhaps don't seem quite as kind of controversial on the surface but clearly they are and you, your research, first of all, looking at phonics in, in UK early years. Now, for those people not in the UK, could you first explain what phonics are and why they were kind of a controversial thing? Yeah, so teaching systematic synthetic phonics, which is a particular way of teaching phonics, is the dominant way that teachers teach children to read. So we all do phonics when we learn to read. It's about learning that, you know, the letter P on the page makes a P sound. We all have to do that when we learn to read. But it usually comes alongside looking at books and understanding words and all of the other things that are involved in reading. So we have a system in England which is very much dominated by just learning those sounds and being able to say the right sound for the shapes on the page. And this means that some of those other aspects of reading, like understanding what the words mean, get sort of sidelined. And that we're quite unusual in that respect. I know Australia, I think, you know, I kind of have more and more phonics, but certainly we're quite unusual in kind of English speaking countries are having such a, a phonics um, focused way of teaching to read. And the government has really pushed it in, in various ways. And I'm, I've become a little bit obsessed with this test that we make children do at age six called the phonics screening test, where 
basically children have to read out 40 words and they're all phonically kind of consistent words. So, you know, they're not words that are spelt strangely. And that data is really important to the school. And it means that we have children in um, reception and in nursery and all the younger age groups doing phonics earlier and earlier, being grouped by how many phonics they know, which ends up being a proxy for ability. Um, so it has these kind of effects beyond just how we teach children to read. Yeah, because, I mean, on the face of it, that all sounds perfectly acceptable, perfectly mm. kind of innovative in a way. So, I mean, what are the social justice implications of having these kind of phonics screenings? Well, there's all kinds of implications of having um, a statutory test with six-year-olds because it affects pedagogy so much. There are particularly implications for children who are learning English, who obviously may not pass the test and they have to do it again a year after. There's, we don't really know what the impact is in terms of how different groups achieve and so on. But what we do know is that there is a kind of real impact on pedagogy, which teachers often don't support, which means far more kind of didactic approaches, far more sort of repetition and rote learning rather than any kind of understanding. And there are these implications also in terms of things like grouping, which we know have implications in terms of inequality so the earlier that you are putting children into ability groups and we found nurseries putting like two-year-olds and three-year-olds into ability groups wow. because of phonics you know and then they're ending up in that in those groupings forever or being labeled and all of that has clear social justice implications and so how is this kind of critical commentary on something which all kind of schools and nurseries are doing has it gone down have you been kind of has this been taken up by educators and other academics or is there pushback um, well, the paper that I wrote with uh, Dominic Wise earlier this year, we got a lot of support from teachers and parents and grandparents writing to us. I think, you know, the kind of dominance of phonics is is really unpopular with teachers. We also had an open letter to the government saying, you know, we, we've reviewed the research and there really isn't research evidence that this is the best approach. Unfortunately, they rejected that uh, that argument there are people who feel really strongly about it. We got some abuse on Twitter mm. about um, not wanting children to learn to read, which is not which is not what we said. And we certainly didn't say that no one should ever do any phonics because clearly it's part of learning to read. But yeah, there's an interesting pushback. It's a political, ideological approach that strangely gets caught up in a lot of other culture wars stuff as well about uh, you know direct instruction and so on. And so it's part of labelling. It's one of those reasons why we get labelled as, as, you know, the left-wing education research elite, you know. Academic killjoys. Yes, the, yes, the academics who don't really want children to succeed or something yeah. um, and don't have our own political agendas, whereas actually I would argue it's quite political choosing to teach children in that particular yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the idea for the kids and you know, children is such a mm. motive. And as you say, political and politicised topic. It's mm. fascinating. And one of the other things that a lot of your research has looked at as this, is this kind of growing significance of numbers yes. in early years and primary education. Attainment data, digital data, you, know, you call it the data-obsessed school. I mean, we hear a lot about this in higher education, but how are numbers or metrics and measurements kind of impacting on children in early years and primary education? And again, how are issues of inequality kind of arising from that? I think there's there's slightly different things going on in primary than in early years. In primary, because we have so much statutory assessment in England, you know, we have several points of assessment in all but two years of primary school. So that feeds the data machine because obviously you are preparing, you're collecting data for the statutory assessments. You've got to always be kind of knowing what's going on. So basically primary schools in England have a huge amount of data that they collect by doing assessments or doing observations 
and then they track children um they you know look at how much progress everyone is making there's just an awful lot of data being collected and produced and analyzed and all of that has sort of practical implications in terms of who gets taken out for interventions who gets put in which groups which teachers get put where and all of these things so data is becoming a very powerful thing in in primary schools and for a long time because Ofsted the in, the inspectors used to expect to see your data getting the data right as teachers would say was really important for the survival of your school because i mean the discourse is it's all about efficiencies and so you know the data obsessed school that can be data driven and the rest yeah. of you you're kind of hinting at the fact that that's perhaps not happening well i think sometimes it happens as a kind of parallel universe the data machine in schools you know that teachers are teaching children and they're making progress and they're building those relationship and all of that is going on but there's also another job which is to represent what's going on mm. and the progress that children are making in the data and making the data look good which is a different task yeah. from the job of actual teaching. And so in terms of what, how the data is actually being used, I'm really interested in this idea of hyper-visibility, hyper the idea that mm. some kids are kind of rendered more visible through data in particular ways and some kids are rendered visible in other ways, but in particularly in terms of kind of you know, socioeconomic status, for example. Mm. I mean, are you finding that in, in your research? Yeah, I think there's some interesting things that happen with teachers having to have meetings about their data every half a term or something. And that being broken then down by pupils who are on pupil premium, so they're lower socioeconomic groups. So teachers have talked about having to make sure their data's right for those pupils more or then being labelled differently on the spreadsheet. So there's all of those kind of issues about, you know, which children are being focused upon and how they're being un understood in terms of the data. There's also really interesting um, significance in some of the visual representations of children. So we often get see spreadsheets with, uh, you know, colour-coded boxes, and, you know, and the child that has all of their boxes red because they're behind in every area, you know, is made hyper-visible by that process, which is a, a totally reductionist view of that child. So there's a lot of kind of interesting, you know, hyper-visibility elements. And also then there's the visibility of the teacher to the senior leadership team who is either not making enough progress with their kids or indeed who is not sending out enough positive messages on their marvelous me app who is not um you know doing their register early enough in the morning you know there's so many ways in which teachers now are being made visible through data that that becomes another whole interesting element about teacher subjectivity. And it changes the, just the micro-economy of the school. We, we were in some schools where they started talking about kids that were flagging red, and that becomes mm. a kind of way that you talk about um, children. Exactly, and it becomes a, another way of labelling certain children as being a problem or certain children as being outside of the norm or, or whatever. Now, if I was being kind of critical, I'd say, well, schools have always labelled and they've always streamed. Mm. and they've. I mean, so is there, what's different? What's different here? I think the shift is in thinking about, in how we think about children as a, a, a person and then how we're thinking about them as a set of data. Mm. So they're worth particularly in, in because of the sort of pressure of statutory testing of some children. Some children are worth more to you than others because they it's worth working with this child so that they, you get them over the, um, over the threshold so that they are going to look good in your figures. So the obsession with data, I think, has this interesting sort of distancing effect of removing the child from the equation and making them just bits of data to be worked on. And the digitization, of course makes all that far more possible. So yes, of course, people have always been assessed, you know, there have always been rankings and, and numbers and so on. But our use of technology, 
one, to visual, visually represent these children, but also just to store the data, to monitor the data, to collect it and, and, and circulate and it circulate it around everyone in the school. All of that has has given the data a kind of life of its own, yeah, I yeah. suppose. No, that's a really good way of putting it. Now, another thing that I'm fascinated by is your writing on the rise of well-being and resilience and grit and growth mindset and uh, you know, all the other stuff that we hear all the time in primary education. Schools are now rife with this sort of talk. So you've written about the model of the ideal learner who's self-regulating, can make choices, which is, can, I mean, can you give a sense of, first of all, how this is being manifest in, in English early years and primary education? And then secondly, what's the problem with it? So that kind of discourse manifests itself in early years classrooms where children have a lot of different activities that they have to choose from. So this is free play, free flow. It's supposed to be the best way to teach children of that age. But of course, what that means is that children are not end up being not only judged on what they're doing, but also what they've chosen to do. So the, I remember there was one boy in, in ethno, ethnography I did where he always wanted to play with a train set. So he was constituted very negatively because he always wanted to play with the train set every single day. So he never took up the opportunities to do right at the writing table or home corner or play with the shapes in the maths corner or whatever. But his failure to choose right ended up being another thing against him because he wasn't embodying that neoliberal, you know, self-improving position of saying, I need to do all these different things and I'm going to show everyone that I'm doing all these different things so that you, the teacher writes it down and, and I get a good score on my observation-based assessment. But I'm also not, not only am I never showing all of those positive things, but I'm also seen as a bad chooser. Yeah. And that's... A problem. Whereas, of course, why he wanted to play with the train set, why he wanted to just do that and didn't feel comfortable maybe doing the other things, or maybe he had never seen a train set and so it was absolutely fascinating to him. Or he just really loved trains. All of that is kind of obscured by this idea that all children know that they should be choosing right um, and so on. So there's real implications in terms of how we judge children, basically. And I think we see it again in the discourses about growth mindset with older children, because if you don't persevere, even when you're being labelled as low ability or you're finding things really tricky, you know, then you are seen as choosing not to show grit. And that's another failure for you, as well as not being good at the maths. But presumably, I mean, it's quite a seductive discourse, all of this, and presumably a lot of early years educators buy into it and actually really value it. I mean, it all seems really positive, doesn't it? It seems like that's how we'd want children to be. But the problem with it is that it it totally obscures the reasons why you might not have resilience or grit Mm. about something in particular. It completely individualises your success or your failure. So if I don't do very well in in the marathon run at school then, you know, I'm a failure because I'm not showing enough grit and there's no, you know, no one thinks about the reasons why because it's to do with me not having enough resilience and no one thinks about whether we did the training or whether we we prepared the children enough. So it's very kind of individualising and it particularly obscures some of the kind of socio-material reasons why children might not want to do particular things or might not have resilience or grit it just says all children are the same and and they can all try their best and then most worryingly I think one of the problems with growth mindset is if you you say you've just got to keep trying you've got to keep trying and then you're always being labeled as a failure then you feel even worse about it it's self-responsibilization of risk as well yeah and so you then it's your fault Mm. and there's no real way out of that
Now, finally, my final question. You've done so much interesting stuff. What's on the horizon? Are there any ideas or things that are just beginning to bubble up that you might be looking at in the next five years? I mean, anything you're beginning just to kind of think might be interesting? Yeah, there's, there's always lots of new directions to go. I've spent last two years, you know, doing a lot of research about COVID and what that's meant for primary schools. And, you know, what will happen afterwards, I think, is all still really uncertain here. Mm. So that's kind of distracted me for a couple of years, really. But the newer thing I'm doing is thinking about how some of the cost of living crisis, the the huge increase in child poverty here is manifesting in schools. And that sort of comes out of the COVID research where schools were, you know, basically being seen as propping up the welfare state. So I'm doing a project on the use of food banks in schools, um, which is about giving out, you know, schools giving out free food, not just to the children, but to the families. And does that, how that works. And then I'm also interested in how, over the next few years, this generation of children who were born during the COVID period, they're all going to start school next year and the year after and the year after that. So I'm interested in how they get understood socially as, you know, a disadvantaged generation or not. And part of the kind of cost of living crisis stuff may end up, I think, playing into that too, because that may be just as significant as COVID in terms of their uh, early experiences. Yeah. So. There's there's definitely a lot of interesting uh, kind of social stuff going on, which I think is going to be significant in the next few years. I mean, super important. Food insecurity, energy insecurity. That generation yeah. has been born into just a world of yeah, yeah. a completely unknown world. I mean, fantastic. I mean, thanks ever so much for that, Alice. It's been really, really good talking to you. Thanks for making the time. That's okay. It's lovely to talk to you.